This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. Dr. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you this evening. How How's the summer treating you so far? Uh, way too busy. Way, way too busy. No vacation at all. I'm now hoping to have uh, a vacation the last week before school starts, but we'll see. (laughs) I'm hoping you get that too. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have somewhere you want to go? I mean, what do you want to do? Actually, my wife is in Maine without me right now. She's uh, taking the vacation. I'm sitting here trying to meet some deadlines. So, Uh, Writing deadlines? Grading deadlines? Writing deadlines, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. So, I, as I mentioned before we started recording, I had originally intended to reach out to you to talk about Jesus and ancient Judaism, which is one of your areas of expertise. But that's going to have to wait at least until okay. uh, later in this conversation or, or to another conversation. Because I, in the process, I stumbled on your book and I try to read everything I can by you. So I'm surprised I missed it when it came out, but I did somehow. Your encountering mystery book. So let, let me set that up just a bit, and then I'll, I'll lead into kind of a first question there. You, so you're, anyone who's listening to my podcast knows this already, but you're a renowned scholar, New Testament, professor of New Testament at Princeton for a long time. How, how many years? Oh, just a decade. I was at Pittsburgh Seminary before I was here. So yeah. I've been here a decade now. And then you've, you're, you're best known probably for your work on Jesus, the historical Jesus, so-called Second Temple Judaism, commentaries, Matthew, multi-volume uh-huh. commentary on Matthew. You're a historian and a New Testament scholar primarily, but you, you're a theologian too and a cultural critic. I haven't read it, but you have the book on George Harrison. Yes? Yeah, I do. Uh-huh. And then this book, I think, fits into something like cultural criticism and theology, for sure. Um, you've written two dozen books or more and you know, uncountable articles and papers. But this book, you say, you say this in the preface, this book is unlike your other books in a lot of ways, both in terms of, kind of how you approach it more like a journalist, more pastoral uh-huh. and, and in terms of topic. So let's, let's start with kind of what was the experience of writing this like, but you, was it, was it something you wrote rather quickly? Did it come to you? In a, pre- in a press, and then what have the responses been? The early responses, at least, it's only been out what a year, roughly. Yeah, it was so so far. All the all the early responses have been good. Some really good. Some just good. But <laughs> none of them have been bad. So that's unexpected. I tell people that um, maybe there are people behind my back who uh, are are saying bad things about me, but they're not doing it to my face. So. Uh, that, that's been nice so far. The experience of writing this book was that I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was maybe more fun than any other book I've written. And that's in part because I decided to be completely honest and candid and personal. And you know, as a scholar, sometimes you're, you know, you're, you're, um, you're talking about, well, one may think or one should believe. And this was a, no, uh, I'm going to talk about me. And so it's, it's I suppose, self-indulgent. But it's also um, on topics I really care about and have thought about a long, long time. So from one point of view, it was easy because I'd been thinking about these things, most of them literally for um, decades. Mm. 
uh, and I, I waited till I had tenure and was at the end of my career, and it wouldn't matter what people think of me anymore. So, you know, I'm at the point where I don't, I don't care. And if people don't like me for this, uh, that's okay. They'll just write it off and say, well, he did some other things that were okay. Well, I, I can't imagine anyone discounting it. I mean, I think perhaps you could have written it earlier, but there is a certain weight you writing in your life, yes? Maybe so, but it's it's odd too. So there's a chapter on uh, modern experience of, experiences of angels. And I look at all these very popular books that theologians think are just fluff and worthless. Mm-hmm. So that's an odd thing to do, isn't it? For a serious scholar to, to look at these things, which are on the level of guideposts and, and wondering if, if any of this is to be taken seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that's that's one of the things that may make this conversation particularly interesting is that I'm on the other side. I mean, I'm a theologian, I'm a professor, but I've lived in that guidepost world. I mean, that's where I grew up. I still move in those circles, popular uh-huh. Pentecostal spirituality. So I think in my circles, and we'll get to this later in the conversation, but in my circles, you know, they're... There's a pressure in the other direction, almost as you know, if you're not having experience. Oh, wrong. So it's a, but but I hear what you're saying. It's a different thing for you, where you are, what you what you've done, what you're associated with. Well, so um, yeah. First of all, I am an historian, and this isn't a book of 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 ancient history. But the other thing is, is that I teach at Princeton Seminary, and Princeton Seminary uh, is a Reformed school, and historically. We are a cessationist. I mean, we think, we thought, we have taught students that everything weird and strange and miraculous just stopped as soon as the New Testament appeared or the last apostle died or however it was phrased. This is the home of B.B. Warfield, yeah. you know, who wrote a book on counterfeit miracles and decided that uh, nothing strange, you know, really ever happens uh, after, after the first century. Uh, there are a couple interesting places, by the way, where he says, you know, I really can't explain this, but I'm sure it has nothing to do with Mother Mary. You know, that kind of yeah. that <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, yeah. so I, you know, I give him applause for at least acknowledging there were a couple of things he couldn't explain away. But my tradition, going back to the reformers, is to explain things away. And this is because we come out of Roman Catholicism and we don't want any Catholic miracles because Catholic miracles are understood historically to justify or support or uh, put the stamp of approval on Roman Catholic doctrine. And yeah. so we simply said, you all have been fooling yourselves for, you know, centuries now. Nothing really strange or unusual or that mm-hmm. can't be explained away has, has, has happened. So I teach in a place where that is the tradition and while most of my colleagues certainly aren't there now, there is still, I think, um, a traditional impulse to ignore the sorts of things I'm talking about uh, in the book. Yeah, yeah, so th- yeah. This isn't, the, this isn't the normal thing here at, at the seminary. No, no, I, I understand. Either that. in the biblical department or the theology department or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up Mary. So I... I... I thought I would ask this question later, but I'll, I'll bring it up now. When I was, so I was raised, as I mentioned to you off air, I was raised in a very conservative, small Pentecostal community. 
in rural Oklahoma. And the, the worst thing you could be would be Roman Catholic. It'd be far worse <laughs> than being an unbeliever. Yeah. Uh-huh. There, in fact, there's a recording. Everyone who listens to the podcast knows this, but there's a recording of me when I'm nine years old preaching a sermon and I'm listing sins. So I'm nine years old. I'm listing the sins that I can imagine. And I'm, I'm listing and then in ascending order of grievance. So it included that list included smoking cigarettes, <laughs> serial murder, oh, which wow. I was killing someone every hour, I think. Yeah. Eating any version of the Bible other than the King James. And the the, the pinnacle of the list was being a Catholic priest, right? So there's wow. uh-huh. So that's the world I grew up in. So around that time, I would have been around that age, nine or ten years old. One night during my prayers at night, I started suddenly singing a song to Mary, thanking her for sharing Jesus with us, because if she had not been generous, we would never have known him. And it terrified me. I I didn't see Mary or hear Mary. I just suddenly, suddenly I was singing to Mary. And it, it frightened me so badly, I didn't share it with anyone until I was an adult. I had a child of my own before I talked to anyone about it. Uh huh. And so I, I think there, one of the things that reading your book kind of brought back to me is that even in a community like mine, where there was a lot of talk about religious experience, there are experiences even in those circles that don't fit, that don't belong. And, and that was absolutely was mine. Did you, did you run into that much? Like even in places where there was, you know, a kind of hothouse for experiences that the experiences were still unpredictable or unexpected. Sure. Um, so sometimes people who are Christian fundamentalists have had near a classic near death experience, for example, and it doesn't fit exactly what they've been taught about heaven or hell. And then they uh, have their experience interpreted to them as demonic or mm. satanic and uh, a lot of these people simply don't report their experience because they know what the response is, is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it, it's actually the case that there are fewer so-called paranormal events reported among fundamentalist Christians than the general population. And I don't think they're having fewer experiences. I just think that they don't fit the categories. Yeah. And when you when you can't take an experience and put it in a category, the tendency actually is to forget it. When you ignore something, it just sort of goes away. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I certainly know uh, lots of of stories uh, of people reporting something and then forgetting it as the years went on because it simply didn't fit the file. They had no file for it, so so they forgot it. Um, one of my favorite um, illustrations of this phenomenon ha- for years now has been uh, the sighting of, of ghosts. So it doesn't matter here for the purpose of illustration what you think ghosts are. I personally yeah. think ghosts are several things, not just one thing. But the point is that in medieval Catholicism, ghosts um, made sense because they were interpreted in terms of purgatory. When the Protestants came along, they taught that everybody was immediately upon death, either in heaven, which was far away, or in hell, which isn't here. And so when you saw a ghost, 
when you saw the shade or the appearance of a dead relative, it couldn't be the dead relative. So it has to be demonic or you're hallucinating or you're crazy. And what happens as soon as this develops is that sightings of ghosts in Protestant countries go way down, way down. And the Protestant pastors actually boast that we don't see ghosts anymore. Well, I don't believe it at all. I think people were still seeing ghosts. I just think they didn't report them. There was no place to plug it in, and they knew that they were going to be disapproved of. So I think experience goes on, whether... um, you know, there's a place for it in your, your, your mental cabinet or, or not. Yeah. I remember sometime around my Bible school years, I can't remember if I had where I was in the process, but I stumbled onto the stories of Johan and Christoph Blumhart, who are, as you, I'm sure, you know, are Lutheran pastors in the black forest who are just going about their pietistic business and suddenly run into the demonic and the ghostly. Uh And again, even for me as a kid, I realized that I grew up in a spiritually charged atmosphere. I mean, angels and demons were as real to us as our neighbors were, maybe more real. <laughs> but, but ghosts was not allowed, right? A categorical oh, Mary, you know, there, there was a categorical block. And I remember, you know, I'm a young man, I mean, probably 20 years old, maybe not even that old reading these stories and they had a ring of truth to them. I, I, my instinct was, well, I know they're not lying and there's something to what they're saying. There's a sound, uh-huh. but I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. Right. I don't know where it belongs. So I think, I think one of the things that I love about your work just in general is how you kind of, you are willing to sit with the complexity of something, right? You, you're not trying to, to nail it all down or to pretend that you've nailed it all down. And I think we're, you know, Certainly, this is as messy as it gets, right? This this yeah. experience. Oh, yeah. So, so I'll take that as a compliment. But the truth is, is that this is actually how we perceive. We're, we're actually programmed, I think, genetically to do this. So the uh, scientists now who study vision tell us that we're, all, we're always sort of filling in the blanks mm. and we're always using scheme or schema to uh, interpret things, right? We're always using memory to process the present. And so that's just the way we are. And so if we have an experience, we're desperately trying to plug it in somewhere. And that's also true ideologically. That is, if I'm a Buddhist or if I'm a Hindu or or if I'm a Christian, I'm going to try my best to to plug in whatever it is that's happening into my, my theology And my own view of this is that the world is really messy and it's really complex and nobody has all the answers. And actually, uh, the variety of experiences doesn't actually fit satisfactorily everywhere. That is, you can't say as a Christian, we can explain 100% of this. This is all fine. Everything fits. There There are always things that don't fit no matter who we are or things that are uh, ambiguous. And I think we should just be honest about, about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so two stories from the book about you and your own experiences. One is the story of you sensing your oneness with the building across the street. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I remember I, I may misquote you here, but everyone should buy the book and, and test to see if I, if, how good my memory is. But I think you said something to the effect of if I were a Hindu, yeah, I don't know exactly what this is, but yeah. since I'm a Christian, 
I say, well, that's interesting. So talk a little bit about that, that experience and kind of how you continue to process that and process well, not only the experience, but your interpretation of it, right? Because we're talking about both what happens to us and what we're always telling ourselves about what's happening. Well, so the story you're referring to is me waking up from the couch one afternoon. I'm in graduate school, so I'm in my early 20s, and I look at the building across the street, which is a totally unremarkable, actually pretty ugly, old brick uh, apartment complex, I would guess built in the early 30s. Anyway, I'd never paid any attention to it before, and I looked at it, and then all of a sudden I'm in some sort of trance or reverie, and uh, I know for certainty that I am the building and the building is me. We are one. Now, it only lasted a few seconds, but it was an overwhelming experience. And I had studied uh, Eastern religions in college, and I knew Atman is Brahman. I, I knew these categories. And it really is the case that almost instantly I said, oh, if I were a Hindu, I would know what this was, but I'm not. Therefore, what is that? Because I really don't, as a Christian, think all is one and that I am God and God is me and so on and so on. Um, you know, uh, no kind of pantheist. But I, I, uh, I have thought of that experience a lot, and I've had a lot of people tell me that they've had this sort of experience, this experience of sort of cosmic unity. And I think we need to do something with it. I'm not sure what theologically, but I still think, well, maybe on some psychic level, I'm connected somehow to everything that doesn't make me divine, doesn't make me God, but maybe there's something here. Um, I've had any number of people report stories like this. And of course, if you look at the literature of mysticism, this is everywhere, not yeah, just yeah. in Eastern mystics, but it's in Christian mystics. And some of them, you know, run with it and get in trouble for, for, for doing so. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not a dogmatic theologian, uh, but I, I want to pay attention to the, these sorts of experiences. I don't want to think about them. I also think that we should think about them with the resources of everybody who has thought about them and reported these experiences. So uh, there's a point at which I'm not just bringing my Christian, um, I don't know, encyclopedia to an experience and saying, okay, how can we force everything into it? I'm saying, okay, I'm not sure what this is. Let's just try to listen to everybody. I do know it's real. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and by the way, I, one of the, I think the reason I mentioned this in the book is not because the experience in itself is terribly interesting or exciting, but it's because I realized then that when the Hindu says Atman is Brahman, it's not just because somebody was sitting around a campfire and said, let's think up some idea. Right. Let's, let's come up with something. It's because something happened to somebody and mm -hmm. this person spoke about it. And then it happened to somebody else and enough people had this experience that they thought, you know, this tells us something about the nature of reality or the world. Um, and I think this is really important because I don't think theology exists over here apart from experience. And, and by the way, that makes no sense to the Bible. The Bible is just filled, oh, right. Right. filled with weird, strange, odd things, visions and dreams and miracles and so on. Mm -hmm. And 
the the theology in part is a response to or an interpretation of what has happened. My favorite example is the central declaration of Christianity, which is God raised Jesus from the dead. That's an interpretation of some really weird encounters, uh, quasi-visionary experiences, whatever you want to to call them, and somebody's grave being emptied. Uh, These are things that happened, and then people said, what does this mean? How do we interpret it, right? Mm. So I'm inclined to look at uh, lots of doctrinal ideas as having roots, or at least their beginnings or their seeds, in experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's right. So the other story I want to turn to is the first one you tell, the story of the stars descending to you. So I think maybe you should share that story, and then I'd like you to talk a bit about the way you were influenced to interpret it at the time. Like, So you had the experience, and then the adults around you essentially say, oh, we know what that is. Yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm 16 years old, and I'm uh, in my parents' backyard. I'm by myself. It's nighttime. As far as I can recall, I'm just thinking or not doing much of anything. Uh, This is 1972, and we have light pollution, but it's not as bad as it is now, so I could see the stars. And uh, there's this switch that takes place instantaneously. I don't know how you want to explain it psychologically or neurologically or, or, or what, but I'm simply there and I'm normal and I'm thinking. And then in a second, everything has changed and everything is different. And when I put it into words, it doesn't make sense, but when I put it into words, it's as though the stars came down from the sky and somehow they announced the arrival or the presence of this overwhelming presence, right? which had no shape or form or anything. It, it wasn't even a blank. It was just, I, I don't know what it was, but it was some sort of invisible presence. And it was overwhelming and it was loving, but it was also forbidding and very other. And instantly, of course, I think I, I'm a teenager in Wichita, Kansas in 1972. I grew up with church. So God G-O-D. That's what, okay, I've met God, right? And uh, I didn't talk to my parents about this. They're both dead now. I'm not sure I ever talked to them about this. I didn't go back in the house and share it with them or my brother. But uh, I wanted to talk about God at that point. And uh, my circle of friends wasn't really into talking about God. And so I went searching for other people, and I ended up in an evangelical church because the people who wanted to talk about G-O-D were evangelicals in my time and place. And they said, oh, yeah, we know what happened. You, you met Jesus, and your sins have been forgiven, and now you've become a believer, and you're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. Well, I was already saying my prayers and going to a church, even though it was rather liberal, And uh, I don't think I was bound for hell, Um, but I did allow, at least for a little while, other people to interpret my experience to me, right? Now, to this day, I still think I ran into, uh, or or maybe God ran into me, uh, 
and this is a foundational event in my life. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, whatever it is, it was real, but I have to be candid at this point. I'm sure it could be interpreted from more than one point of view, not just it was a neurological glitch, but uh, somebody told me once after we had a conversation that, oh yeah, this, uh, this is something that you find in uh, uh, Hindu lore where the stars come down and surround people. So I don't know. I've never actually spent time looking into that, but, um, that's part of the frustration and the messiness of this. It would be nice if there were a simple voice or, you know, some writing uh, in the stars that said, Hey, I am the Supreme being, and this is what it means. But it was this mystery. It was overwhelming and I had to do something about it. And I really think that my entire life from one point of view grows out of that moment. It did feel like I woke up and I began to think about things in a way I never had before. And I was certainly crazy about religion at that point. And I started reading the Bible um, every day and studying it and, and so on. So um, in the book, what I, I stress, I think above everything, is that whatever you make of this experience and however you interpret it, I wasn't crazy. I'm not crazy now. I'm perfectly sane. Mm-hmm. And this event, which lasted, I don't know, 20 seconds, I have no idea, 10 seconds, it wasn't very long. This uh, changed the course of my life. And so it seems to me we should have some sympathetic, uh, you know, understanding that these things really happen to people, right? No matter who, no matter what your interpretation is, I think that we need to take seriously these things. I wasn't seeking it. I wasn't on drugs. I didn't drink alcohol. There was no, there was nothing. It was just completely out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't seeking it. Uh, so it felt as though it happened to me. It did not feel as though I projected this and made it happen. It was more like something really weird happened to me. And I did my best to struggle with concepts to, to verbalize it. Yeah. So that you, you brushed up against it there. Obviously, you're a historian and a biblical scholar. So let's talk a little bit about how these experiences, you, you name three or describe three in that opening chapter, but you refer to others, that there are, there are a number you say that are dated and named that you, that yeah. you over the years, including of course, I'm assuming the one of being at one with the building, but how has that shaped the way you read scripture? Do you think, I mean, in obvious ways and not so obvious ways, well, for, first of all, it makes scripture more real to me. So if I'm a cessationist, all this stuff is totally foreign. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if I'm a cessationist, I'm actually worried. Because if I can explain away everything that's gone on for the last 2,000 years without reference to God or spirits or angels or what have you, mm-hmm. then it should be a really easy step to explain away everything in the Bible. Actually, as an historian, I think that the day, the deus uh, in the 18th century um, are the direct heirs of the Protestant Reformation and cessationism. The Protestants said, okay, all these miracles didn't happen except these. It was really easy to say, 
Well, none of them happened, right? So we're going to be deists rather than than theists. Uh, I think people like Hume, if you could look at his genealogy, are influenced by people like Locke, who are cessationists, and they're getting it straight from you know the the Reformation. So it actually makes me more comfortable with the Bible. It actually makes it more believable, and it makes it more real. It makes it more real. So without these sorts of experiences, I just don't know what you do with all these dreams and these visions. And they don't make any sense, do they? No, that's right. Well, you give you give some terrific examples in the book about Pauline scholars reading. You, know, you talk about Barrett and Murphy O'Connor. <laughs> a couple off the top of my head. Talk about that a bit. The ways in which you can see other scholars in your field or adjacent fields, like downplaying what the text plainly or more or less plainly says. Yeah, well, so I actually think there's been a, a little a bit of a change in my field. So, and, and I think you could trace it in part to James Dunn's work, uh, mm-hmm. Jesus and the Spirit, which was published yeah. in, in the 70s. I do know, or I've been told, that when C.K. Barrett uh, heard Dunn lecture on uh, give the lectures that were the basis for the book, he was really confused and didn't know what to make of it because he was used to approaching Paul as a systematic theologian yeah. and as a theologian who didn't found anything in experience. It was all revelation, and revelation was understood to be opposed somehow to experience. But if you read Paul, he's a visionary, and he has multiple visions, and he speaks in tongues, and apparently he can do some kind of, you know, miracle um, or, or miracles. So uh, he's not a laid-back, uh, systematic theologian who's just thinking thoughts. He's a person who is having experiences and watching others have experiences, and sometimes they get out of hand, you know, as in as in Corinth. Yeah. But he doesn't say, oh, that's a bunch of baloney. He says, okay, let's see if we can't organize this a little better. But he, mm-hmm. he's taking them seriously. He doesn't say, well, you know what, just forget it because this is all uh, a neurological problem. That's, mm-hmm. that's just not what he does with this stuff. So you, I did cite in the book some... Uh, cases of exegetes when they're looking, especially at the end of Second Corinthians, where you know Paul he goes to the third heaven and, and so on, where they the, these commentators, uh, because I don't think they're tuned in to um, religious experience. By the way, C.K. Barrett was a great scholar. I have great sure, admiration for him, so sure. I'm a little uneasy with this, but. He wasn't really comfortable with this stuff going on in second, at the end of Second Corinthians, and so he he downplays it. I think uh, that Paul's experiences were central to who he was. Actually, he starts off with what Acts calls a vision, right? He, he sees the risen Jesus. Yes, that's that's an experience, and it's an experience that changes his life and turns everything upside down. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, I mean one of the things that in my own doctoral work I stumbled into that, you know, so I grew up in churches. We did the Lord's Supper once a year at a watch night service with foot washing. Uh-huh. And the, the text, the assigned text was always first Corinthians partaking unworthily. You know, so as a kid, I would not take communion because I was, a, I was afraid I wouldn't be sick uh-huh. or I would die because of, you know, my unconfessed sins. Yep. 
but I, it was not until I was, you know, doing doctoral work that I realized that Paul claims not only to have had this vision of Jesus, right, that he's appeared to me, but also that Jesus has taught him about the Last Supper, right, that he had received directly from Jesus this these events of the Last Supper. Right? So he, that he did not receive it from, you know, Peter, James, and John, but that Jesus himself appeared and, and that the kind of the claim that he's making there is not just you know, an encounter with Jesus, which is itself already radical, but can be domesticated, right? We can tell Paul's story in such a way that, you know, he's got that one Damascus Road experience. But from there, he's just kind of working out. But he's claiming more than that. I mean, he's claiming that this is, you know, that the Lord is instructing him directly. The, the, you know, the exegetes disagree about that one, as you can imagine. But there, of course, are many commentators who look at that text that you're talking about in First Corinthians and say, it sounds like he got the words of institution in a revelation, something like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's that would be really strange, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, and, and it goes to the point of just how strange the Bible is when you let it be, right? When, when you're not preconditioned not to let it be. Yeah, one of the things that really puzzles me is um, conservative Christians who take the Bible seriously and pay no attention to dreams, for example. <laughs> there are lots of dreams, and it's also quite clear uh, that sometimes a vision is taking place at night, and the meaning of that is quite clear. That mm-hmm. is, sometimes these people are having visions while they, they sleep, just as uh, goes on today. Uh, I remember running across the second century yeah, late second century source at one point, and a woman is describing her vision, and you know it's important and crucial. And then at the end, she says, "And then I woke up." The whole thing is a vision, and you don't know it's a dream, except that she adds the little note there. But Daniel has visions of the night. Of the night, yeah. Right, Abraham, Genesis fifteen. It sure sounds to me like he's in some sort of non-conscious or non-ordinary state there, right? Um, and dreams are interpreted, uh, and, and so on. Anyway, yeah, it's just this is this is a disconnect. So it goes back to your question: How does this help my reading of the Bible? I look at it and say, "Yeah, people have dreams all the time, and uh, they remember their dreams, and sometimes they're profound, and sometimes they think God is speaking to them through their dreams." And isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And I'm not. And, and I just think it's weird to say, well, of course that happened in the Bible, but it never happened after that. <laughs> right, yeah. Makes no sense. Yeah, no, for sure. So this, I'm not sure how to ask this question. I'll I'll gesture toward it and, and trust your intuition with it. But I think, so I just grabbed the book off the shelf before we started tonight. Uh, I had a friend uh, who's who passed away not long after he gave me this book. It's by Roy Clouser, who was a professor of philosophy in New Jersey and had written a couple of books that evangelicals were passing around. This particular book is the one that introduced me to Pascal. The title of the book is Knowing with the Heart, Religious Experience and Belief in God. And in it, in one of the chapters, he kind of sketches types of experiences, which really I learned later, essentially he was synthesizing William James uh-huh. and uh, 
you know, kind of the other cl- some other classic accounts of religious experience. But he, he he makes a distinction between three types. So he says, I, I picked this up today just to recalling it, knowing I was going to talk with you. He says there are three main types. One, perceptual phenomena such as voices, visions, and miracles are experienced. Two, a sense of a presence, personal or impersonal. Or three, mystical communion or union. And then he goes on immediately to say, these are not mutually exclusive, and some res- rum- some reported experiences cut across these categories. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I read this. This would have been, you know, early 2000s when I read this. And I've kind of worked with that assumption, right, that you've got types of experiences. But reading your book, return me to this again. I wonder if trying to type the experience is already a kind of mistake. I mean, obviously, we have to be able to talk about it. So uh-huh. some typing is required. But if we're going to type it, I my instinct is the more important one is is something like between the numinous and the weird or between the numinous and the merely strange. I'm not sure, but maybe you can feel where I'm headed with, with that thing. That's not quite a question yet. Well, so I didn't offer any neat categorizations in the book. Um, I guess when it came to angels, I tried to break those down into six or seven categories, but look, everything is messy. So often when you hear, let's say, a voice or have a vision, you also have SOP or sense of presence, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And you can have a SOP or sense of presence with mystical union at the same time. So these things overlap. And the other thing is that I, you know, I don't know how to draw this neat distinction between the inexplicable and... um, the, the, the miraculous. So in, in the Middle Ages, they have this nice distinction between miracles and wonders. And they say miracles are things we can't explain that are done by God. Mm-hmm. Wonders are things that we can't explain. And who the heck knows what the heck is going on, right? Right. Okay. So I actually think that uh, there are experiences people have, and it's not clear to me which category they belong to. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also think that the category of the inexplicable without figuring out agency is the larger of the two categories by far. And then that morphs mm-hmm. very quickly from what people might think of as religious experience to um, paranormal or uh, Fordian or what, what, whatever you want to call it. So my view of the world uh, is messy, and there are lots of wonders. There are lots of paranormal things, and I don't know how to associate God with with everything. Now, this is a really—you're a theologian, so you you you'll be able to solve my problem. But I've had this problem forever. So the problem is, isn't it wrong? To say, let's say that some experiences over here are unconnected with God, and you know these are directly connected to God because isn't God eminent in the world? It, you know, when I give thanks uh, for my meal, right? Um, an atheist could look at everything from the planting of the seed to my table 
the the growing, the farming, the trucks, the grocery stores, all of it, and not see anything strange. But I still want to mix God in with that. I still want to be grateful for my food and say this has something to do with God. So that bothers me because I wonder if this distinction between wonder and miracle uh, is sometimes forgetting that God is involved in all sorts of other ways rather than just, you know, parting the Red Sea. And you say, well, that must be God. That, you know, that one's pretty clear. But when people sometimes, let's say, have uh, a premonition uh, and they, they know that they shouldn't do something, and then they don't do it and realize, oh, yeah, I saved my life, right? It's very interesting because in our society, half the people will say, God told me, right? God communicated. Other people will just say, well, I had this premonition, right? Yes. I, I saw the future or sensed it or something. And a few people will say, well, it was my angel, you know, because I have a guardian angel. My angel told me this. Well, I don't know. I don't. I have no how do I sort these sorts of these things out? I, mm. I just don't. But um, sometimes I'm, I like this distinction between wonder and miracle. But then when I think about it too much, then I get anxious and think, no, I'm making some big mistake here. Well, sure. I, I, because I, I think theologically, at least what I would want to contend, is that that is a helpful distinction. It's a heuristic for us. But that it doesn't describe some divide that's between God and us or between mm-hmm. God and us, right? It's, it's, it's something we need to get by, but it's, it's not a, a division in reality itself. You may, you may be familiar with this language um, of the causal joint. So I learned it from Roland Williams, who himself, he took it from Austin Farrar, who was Anglican theologian. Uh-huh. Before him. And I've kind of played with that notion and, what, what struck me one day, I was teaching about it, and it just hit me that when we talk about a joint, we think, I mean, we think about bars or dives. Right? <laughs> At the, what he means by the causal joint is kind of where the divine touches the creation, right? Where uh-huh. God's work has influence on us, right? And that somehow that is not us. But we are inseparable from it, right? Like that, that mm-hmm. joint that we can't access, and yet clearly God can get to it. Or at least we can't access it as God does or at will. Uh-huh. But it hit me one kind of in the mid-lecture is that what if we think about kind of our interiority as a joint, like as a dive or a bar? And like there's all kinds of stuff happening in there, right? Mm-hmm. And that... Part of the reason some of this is messy is that there are, in the language of, of the scripture, there are many spirits in the world, right? That, that inside of this joint, this bar, uh-huh. you know, the Star Wars cantina, right? Like there's, a, <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of things happening there that we can't track. Right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if an image like that, like where, where, would, where would you take that? If I, if I were to kind of toss that to you, what would you make of that? Does that resonate with what you've seen in your research in terms of what human being, like the wildness and kind of uh, uncontrollability of it? Uh, Well, sure. The last, um, because, so so for example, this book is actually rather tame. I could have written another book, which was not tame at all, but then people wouldn't have known what to do with it, right? So I'm still trying to, to speak here as though I can sense some rhyme or reason. 
But the, the truth is that all sorts of things are really, really weird. And once you start getting to the subconscious mind and the unconscious mind and God speaking to the heart and Jesus living within you and your guardian angel and evil spirits in the world and so on, you are a sort of crossroads, right? Yes. Yes. And you're not the only thing here. At least I don't think you are. Yeah. And I think it's it's uh, a mess in there, which is in part why religious experience can be so weird and messy because it's not just, um, you know, A or B or, or, or black or white. In fact, sometimes I tell people, I don't know what you'll think of this, but I, I, I am okay saying that I believe in angels and I believe in demons, but I, I'm guessing that those are the ends of a spectrum and that there are other things in here. I think I've run into other things that don't seem to me particularly for God or against God. They're just weird, yeah. right? They're strange. Uh, you know, maybe like jinns or genies or mischievous spirits, or maybe just things in some other dimension that by mistake run into us, you know, for 10 seconds and then they're off to some other place and it makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, for, for me, I am, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be the sort of Christian who says, okay, here it is. It's got to be angels or demons or God or right or, or evil, something like, like that. When I, um, when I was young, I suppose in my twenties, I ran across uh, a fellow named Charles Fort and most people don't know anything about Charles Fort. He was a very weird character who lived in the first part of the 20th century, spent his, his, most of his time, I don't know where he got his money, uh, but most of his time in the big library in New York. And he went through scientific journals and popular science journals. And all he did was catalog things that didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. All right. He in his first book was called The Book of the Damned. And by that, he meant the 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 facts that are damned by his you know contemporary science things that people have seen or experienced or whatnot that just don't fit and so you know the 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 favorite illustration uh for fortians has always been rocks don't fall from the sky and you can find all the major scientists of the 18th century saying rocks don't fall from the sky but people would see rocks fall from the sky. And at some point, the scientists figured out, oh, yeah, rocks fall from the sky. We'll call them meteorites. OK, uh, so Ford thought there were lots of things like that going on in the world and that they were ignored because they didn't fit the, the current categories mm-hmm. of the day. And the Book of the Day made an impression on me. And I, I'd like to think I've been open minded ever since which means that our categories uh, of current knowledge aren't going to get everything and our theological categories aren't going to get everything, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I can get in trouble here because at some point people say, well, you believe in this, you believe in that, you're accepting testimony. What about UFOs or UFO abductions or 
Bigfoot, you know, where does this end? Well, actually, it is a spectrum and it's a mess. Um, and so I don't know how to draw nice, neat lines. Uh, the good thing about writing a book is I was able to say, okay, I'm going to talk about these eight subjects and stop, right? But if I were to write about the world as it is, um, it, it would that book would be surrounded by all these things that make no sense to me at all. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go to to some text, some biblical text, and I'll just kind of toss them to you, and you tell me like how you would read them. And, and I, this is completely off the cuff, so I'm <laughs> just going to see what texts arise for me, and then you you can respond to them. But something you said just a moment ago reminded me of the the story of Paul and the slave girl, the, the girl who has the divinizing spirit and that he, he seems to take time to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. It's Acts, mm-hmm. 15, Acts 16, somewhere in there. I think it's Acts 16. And, and, but then he, you know, expels this spirit, but mm-hmm. the text, it doesn't call it an evil spirit. Exactly. Right. Like it does. Even the text itself seems to acknowledge she has, she, what she's saying is right. I mean, these, these men are speaking uh-huh. the word of God, and one of the, I mean one of the things that he, I remember reading the text, and for whatever reason, what stirred up in me is I wonder what happened to this girl in the <laughs> aftermath of the so-called deliverance, right? And I, mm-hmm. and I started to realize this is actually a major theme in the New Testament: what happens in the aftermath of these miracles. But that's maybe a conversation for another day. Like, what, what, where, where would you, yeah, direct me on that text? Well. So off the top of my head, what immediately comes to mind is the the issue of modern exorcism, right? And how you diagnose these things. Mm -hmm. And the New Testament doesn't take a lot of time to say, okay, Paul sent for the doctors and, and, you know, they discussed the case and so Mm -hmm. on. So I don't think whoever we are, that we are like uh, Jesus or, or Paul. And I actually, going back to the very beginning here, I like the Roman Catholic Church here because if they have a suspected case of possession, right, the exorcist is the last option. That is, they will run somebody through the psychological tests. They will do all the medical exams. They will try everything to make sure that this can't be solved in ordinary standard categories, right? And then they say at the end of all this, well, okay, let's bring the exorcist in. Uh, we ha- I, That's wise. And at this point in history, no matter what we make of the biblical stories, we have to do that because we do know that for centuries, epileptics were diagnosed as being demoniacs, right? Mm-hmm. And we know that you can sometimes through surgery, but more often through drugs, you can control the seizures. And it becomes obvious, you know, in most cases, epilepsy is not demonic, right? It's just, uh, you know, it's a physical, it's actually a physical electrical problem Mm -hmm. in the brain. So given everything we've, we know, uh, I like what the church does, which is let's try to figure this out. And if we can't figure it out, then we bring in 
you know, the, the, the mystery man who <laughs> has, has the mojo and the magic and yes. knows what to do to do with this. Uh, so actually, I would be more comfortable with the New Testament if it gave a nod to that sort of, of thing. But I, I think in their, in their world, they're just operating with the normal category, which is, you know, this person is a demoniac, and then whatever the, the mechanism is, the person is, is healed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus doesn't have a, a, a pill in his pocket, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there is, so I'll ask you this a question as both as a historian and a, a biblical scholar. The, do you see differences, say, between the ways the different, you know, so obviously exorcism is right there at the beginning of Mark. It doesn't ha- seem to have the same place in John that it does in Mark and Matthew, obviously. It has no place in John. It's gone. Yeah, right. Unless you read, you know, the devil has no place. It's almost reverse, right? The devil has nothing in me. Uh-huh. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, Jesus is not the exorcist, right, in, in John. Uh-huh. Do you see difference between the Gospels beyond that? What do you make of that difference? Then, then between the Gospels and, say, Paul... And in various parts of Paul, do talking specifically about the demonic and exorcism, how much diversity really is there in the New Testament on that topic? So I I think there is some, and I may be wrong here, but my hunch is that this may have something to do with experience and, for want of a better word, taste. So there are people who are just turned off by exorcisms, and they're not pleasant, and they you know, want to do something else. And whoever wrote John, he has to know these stories. There's no way he doesn't know some some of these stories. And he simply doesn't reproduce them. Mm. And then if you look at Matthew, Matthew sort of tones down some of the things in Mark. For example, um, things that you might think of as being a bit magical, right? You know, Mm. you've got the, the spit and the you know, the, the, the phrase in Aramaic, which might sound kind of like an incantation and so on. So mm-hmm. I th- Matthew believes in exorcisms uh, and he believes in miracles. But I think he's uh, more cautious about this than than Mark or more self-conscious. Mark is just Mark is just in the parade with Jesus and he's just telling you what's happening. Yeah. And uh, I, I've never by the way, I don't know what Mark is. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a recent book written which um, seems to think that it's actually not a finished text and it's more like, you know, a notebook or notes or something. And I don't know whether that's true, but um, Mark is a mess. And I've never kind of figured out how it's organized. Matthew is really neat. Matthew is like Genesis 1. You know, we did this on day 1. We did this on day 2. We did the Matthew's got 14s and triads. And he's, yeah, he's got numbers. Mark is just boom, 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 boom. Where the heck am I? Hmm. So it's the same thing with the exorcisms. Mark is just, yeah, here it is. And I'm, I'm guessing that Mark is giving you a good sense of what it was like with Jesus. And Matthew just isn't isn't as happy there. It's possible that there are, let's say, this is just completely uh, conjectural, but it's, you can imagine that, that the author of John knows some exorcists, and he just doesn't like them much. 
And maybe maybe they're always saying, we're really like Jesus. We're doing what Jesus did, and he thinks it's best to leave it alone. So you can't get behind a text, obviously, and and make the, draw those sorts of conclusions. But it does look to me like, for whatever reason, Matthew is, is not so, as comfortable. And for whatever reason, John just says, we'll talk about other things, right? <laughs> kind, yeah. kind of like, uh, you know, my Reformed tradition. We don't do anything with... With, with exorcism, uh, and by the way, when, uh, I, I guess I'm half joking, but sometimes I tell people, you know, if a parishioner comes and wants you to do an exorcism, don't do it. Call a Catholic priest, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, it's already true. I don't, I don't know the explanation. It's already true in the uh, 16th century that Protestants are infamous for not being able to cast out demons and Catholics, in their polemic against Protestants, say, what's wrong with you? Yeah. God's not on your side because you can't deal with these demons. We, we've got it, right? But that, of course, brings us to right, another text, which is the, the accounts in the Gospels and then in Acts of the disciples seeing people casting out demons, but not in Jesus' name, and being up in arm, taking, you know, yeah. being uh-huh. taken aback by it. But then... In Acts, trying to do that in Paul's name, right? And the demons respond with, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? So, again, you've got diversity right there in terms of the witness. Like, can, can, uh, are there exorcists who aren't carrying their Jesus card and yet are still? So, uh, yeah, my answer is, of course. Of course. My answer to this would be just look around the world because exorcism isn't just in the New Testament. Exorcism is in Taoism. Exorcism is all, you know, Hinduism. Exorcism is all over the world. And my tendency here is just to go to the end of Matthew 5 and say that God God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. God Mm -hmm. makes the sun shine on the good and the evil. Uh, I don't have any reason to think that God uh, doesn't do good things for people who don't have my theology. That doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. So in our last 10 minutes or so, I want to ask you just to kind of respond to some questions from my world, if that's if that's okay, right. sure. what you've done. So the first one, and this is one that has bothered me for a long time, both both personally because of my family and friends, as well as my own experience, as well as as a theologian in this tradition and a you know, soon to be a bishop in this tradition, that there seems to be a lot of experience that rings, I want to be careful here, but rings cheap or shallow. And like one of the things about like reading your book reminded me of this, that I, I'm I'm bothered by how much folks in my world are comfortable talking about experiencing God, but how rarely that sounds or feels numinous in the telling or terrible or awful in the archaic sense of those terms. And I realize today it's telling that those words, you know, terrible and awful don't hold that old meaning. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I'm not, I'm not sure that it's just, my tribe that has lost that sense. But, but unlike, you know, Princeton, the the world of middle America Pentecostalism, you know, God is talking all the time to everybody about everything. Uh-huh. Like, constantly. And yet, there are rarely experiences that have 
life-altering weight, crushing weight, you mm-hmm. know, walk up on, right? So what would you say to us about that? What would you, where would you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, what, how would you respond? Oh, golly. So, huh. so I'm open-minded. I like to think that I'm open-minded and I want to listen to everybody's stories, but human experience is, is boundless and it has to be informed or interpretations has to be informed and people can have experiences and interpret them in an uninformed fashion, or people can have very little experience and turn them into stories. So Mm -hmm. I simply think you need a theological education. You need to educate people, right? So I, I don't know what impression people will get from this interview, but I like to think that the book is critical. When I look at a particular type of experience, I will say, well, I'm inclined to think that we could think about it this way, but I acknowledge there are people who think this or there are skeptics who think that um, and, and so on. I remember uh, a neighbor once who saw Satan everywhere. When her back ached, she she had an explanation. It was the devil uh, attacking her muscles in her back. Okay, well, I did it buy it. So being open-minded about experience is relative. So I'm open-minded giving, given my context. My context within the academy and the Reformed tradition is a context of skepticism. So to be open-minded in that context is to say, well, I think there are things that we need to pay attention to and can't be explained. But in your context, the problem is another one. The problem isn't being open-minded. The problem is trying to sort through the mass of claims and experiences. And that's why uh, they need theologians as bishops, right? And that's why they need informed pastors. Uh, One of the reasons for writing the book um, for me was pastoral. I want pastors who have some sense of what happens and what doesn't happen and what's healthy and what isn't and and, and so on. Uh, Because experience is just like everything else in life. I mean, life, I guess, is experience, right? It's a mess. And you can appeal to anybody's experience to prove anything. Mm -hmm. So you have to, I think, follow in William James's footstep, which is listen look at the stories, and then do your best to analyze them sympathetically, right? Yeah. But you can't just, you can't just say, I, I, I got sciatica, it's, it's a demon. <laughs> demon, right, right. You just can't so, do that. Or my thyroid is dysfunctioning. Um, I'm not going to go see a doctor, I'm, right? I'm going to no, have an exorcism. No, that's crazy. So yeah. people misinterpret and they overinterpret and they misremember and they tell stories and all that is true and it's all indubitable, which means this is like everything else. It's difficult and hard and messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things, and I won't take time to read it now. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but there is in response to Marian apparitions, right? The, the, I think it was the, Ratzinger's 
doctrine of the faith, you know, defense of the faith's faith commission that formulated this. I mean, obviously it has a long history, but pretty sure Ratzinger oversaw it. Regardless, there's a kind of official statement from the Vatican about how how you go about discerning the the viability and very uh-huh. is trustworthy, right? These Marian apparitions. Yep. And there are like negative criteria and positive criteria, but one, there, there are three that they point out that kind of stayed with me that I think apply far beyond like appearances of Mary. And that is the first one is, you know, what, what kind of person are we dealing with here? Right. How, are they a trustworthy person in general? I mean, do we, uh-huh. do we rule out, you know, this is a person who's always saying crazy things. Right. But then, and that, so that's one thing. And, and there is an element of that that is, Inevitably subjective. Who's doing the judging? Yeah, all. sure. The things they point out are, you know, what is being claimed in the revelation, like the the, the content, if there is mm-hmm. any, mm-hmm. to the experience. What what is that content, and does it resonate with the tradition? Does it does it seem? It doesn't have to like touch. In fact, it would be suspect if it simply repeated mm-hmm. what had been said before. But if it if it resonates, that's a good sign. If it doesn't resonate, why not? But I think for me, the one that's most telling is what is the fruit of the revelation being shared? Like once once the story is told, what comes from it in the mm-hmm. life of the who's experienced it? Does that seem sound to you? Because it strikes me as a really like prudential in the best sense approach to these matters. Off the top of my head, because I don't know the document to which you are referring, but off the top of my head, that makes perfect sense. And the last one is actually William James's idea. So mm. you will know them by your fruits. And that's actually how he sort of pragmatically approaches the, the issue of religious experience. You should judge them uh, according to 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 the outcome. Uh, but I, I would add something here. Uh, which might not be helpful for you, but a sort of footnote as a Fordian again. So mm-hmm. let's say that you have um, a Marian apparition and let's say a number of people claim to have seen it at the same time, but you decide that it's not Mary, all right? So your inclination as a Catholic is to say, okay, that's gone. Let's go on to the next thing. My inclination as a Fordian would be, what the heck was that? Are people having a collective hallucination? Are there such things as this? What might this be? Um, So one of my favorite illustrations of this is the um, series of appearances that took place in Zaytun, Egypt in the late 1960s. And if you read the accounts from the people who were there, and many of them are Muslims, they're not Hindus, and some of them are secular people, and some of them are journalists, Um, you understand why the Egyptian, uh, the Coptic Christian says, this was Mary, it's just obvious how it couldn't be anything else. So I look at this, and this apparition, which was seen repeatedly, never said anything, never communicated anything, and I look at it and I say, wow, I have no explanation at all, I simply don't know what this is. And it's fascinating to me, right? It's fascinating, whatever it is. So you're right. If you want to judge this as a Christian, that's one thing. But as a Fordian, I also want to say, this goes back to the weird or the paranormal or whatever. I don't want to say it doesn't fit 
my Christian categories, or I decided it's not Mary or it's not from God, therefore, who cares? I'm going to say, you can, we learn anything, can we learn anything from, from mm-hmm. this? And I spent some time working on these visions uh, in Zaytun, Egypt. And um, I've talked to lots of people who, who have relatives who were there. Um, I've read many, many firsthand accounts. Uh, I've been able to see a manuscript which has collected tons of these things. Uh, I don't know what to make of it, but I actually think that whatever you make of it, it might be a sort of disproof of materialism or reductionistic materialism, because whatever this is has no ordin. As far as I can see, it can't be reduced to anything that we understand now. Mm-hmm. Um, the the manuscript I saw on this event is written by a philosopher, and this is actually his conclusion. His conclusion is not Mary re- revealed herself in Egypt. It's this makes no sense mm-hmm. if you know. Uh, it just makes no sense. So yeah. that, that's just a footnote. I had to throw that in there. But I, I think, it, you know, maybe we'll get a chance in the future to talk further. But I, I definitely think there are things that, as a theologian, as a Christian, that there are things that are evil and there are things that are good, but that the world, you know, the, you described it as a kind of spectrum. But I think we might also simply talk about it as the world in which the good and evil are set against each other is just so much stranger than we've allowed, like so much stranger. And that our lot, you know, there's that you, and to your credit, I think you challenge Taylor on this, Charles Taylor's notion that you know, there used to be porous selves. And oh yeah. And well, <laughs> I don't know that there are any buffered selves. I think there are people <laughs> who tell themselves they are buffered. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, Look, I'm I'm porous. My wife is porous. My children are porous. I have porous friends. The idea that we're that we're not porous just makes no sense to me. Yeah. These things are going on. Um, they're just not be. They're just not going in going on officially in certain sections of the academy. Yeah. That that's it. Um, and they do go on with people in the academy who then don't tell anyone about them. Yeah, that's another thing that comes through in the book is that you you show that there are a lot of people who are having these experiences but won't allow themselves or don't feel that they are allowed to say so. Yeah, actually, uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is a website which is for scientists, official, you know, PhD scientists, uh, a website where it's a safe room. It's a safe room for scientists where they can be mystics and say, this happened to me, but I won't tell you my name because I'll get fired. Yeah. So – um, yeah, that's not only evidence that that scientists are having these experiences, but it's also sadly evidence of censorship, which isn't just, uh, you know, in the cessationist traditions. It's also part of our secular society I'm, or parts of our secular society. Last question. And this is this is a somber note, but I don't want to end the interview without us talking about it. I think the most haunting thing in all that you shared is in the chapter on prayer, which I think is the third chapter. And you, you talk a bit about your own praying, like how you learn to pray. You, like most of us, we're not taught how you. Yeah, uh-huh. 
and you describe, which again, <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read it the first time. The the you know you're seeing names on a on a you know geographical. Oh yeah, uh-huh. that, that caught me wildly off guard, uh, which is delightful. I'm glad. We should talk more about those things. I think as scholars, <laughs> we should be more open with it, with one another yeah, about. Uh-huh. Them. But toward the end of that chapter, you make the observation that you think the more screens, the the, the, the kind of proliferation of technology and entertainment technology in particular. I think you say at one point at, at this, we, there are more screens than there are people at this point. Uh-huh. And you say the more screens, the less prayer, the more screens, the less prayer. So again, it's a kind of a heavy note to end on, but I think it's such a vital one. And it's the most haunting line for me from the book, at least after my first reading. Um, uh, let's talk about that. So, well, so you mentioned Pascal earlier, and my thoughts about this actually go back to Pascal, who's been a very important person for me. I, Pascal says, one, that we run from God. This is just our natural state. And two, we run from ourselves. So the result is we're always trying to entertain ourselves, correct? Yeah. And prayer is not running from God, and it's not running from ourselves because we're actually usually sitting alone and we have to look in and we have to think and we can't be distracted. Uh, prayer is the... So um, two days ago, I was forced, uh, for reasons that I won't explain, to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Do you know what Chuck E. Cheese is? I wish I did not know, but yes, I do. And my yeah. Lord, Chuck E. Cheese so is, Las Vegas, is Las Vegas for children. It's absolutely horrible, but it's exactly what Pascal is is talking about. It's just distraction, distraction, distraction. And um, as somebody who thinks we need to think quietly and meditate and say our prayers and examine our lives and look at, uh, you know, look ahead to death and do all these very somber, serious things, I think screens are are taking us from from these things, and I actually gave some statistical evidence for it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that this is uh, an empty claim. Um, but the other thing is, if you're old enough, if you're like me, you can remember life before screens. I remember before screens, yeah. right? And uh, I, I, I could, wish I could go back there. Yeah. Because it is much harder for me to sit in a chair and read a book for six hours than it used to be. In fact, I, I don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just I just think this is bizarre and it's totally unnatural. Um, I'm old enough that I can remember my grandparents and my grandparents could remember a time when there were no screens. Yeah. And they got along. They weren't miserable because they had no screens. And then they could remember when there was one screen in town. It was the movie picture show, right? You know, 1910, 1950, that's it. And then they remembered, they lived through it, where all of a sudden TVs appeared and then everybody got a screen. And then we got phones and everybody has multiple screens. Heck, I'm on a screen now. There's a screen there. My cell phone is... I have, I have four screens right here. This yeah. is crazy. And um, I've, I've given up pretty much talking about it because I think people 
I, I think people think I'm weird, but I do think we're addicted to screens and I don't think they are helping us. And I don't think little apps that remind us to pray or that have the Bible on it are really the, the yeah. solution. Um, I don't know what the solution, maybe there is no solution, but. Um, yeah, well, it, it is, I think it really important, not just interesting, but important like domain for us to pray into and study. I, so I'm glad, you, I'm glad you raised it. Interestingly enough, I was raised in the churches that were, we didn't, we weren't allowed to watch television. <laughs> so I was raised without a screen. In fact, when we would, when my parents would take us on vacation or we would travel to see family, if we stayed in a hotel room, they would cover the screen uh-huh. with a towel. Whatever. I was, I was an adult before I went to the movies. Uh-huh. And then, Later in life, I, I kind of became interested in the history of that. So I taught a course on theology and film and Pentecostal tradition. And I studied the history of kind of Pentecostal preaching about the movies. And one of the things I picked up on is exactly what you just described, which is there was an instinct. And I, and I mean, I think, you know, it went off in socially conservative ways that really didn't have much to do with the gospel. But there was a, there was a kind of salient moral instinct that there's something here about the movie house. Like this is a different kind of space and people uh-huh. are different in that space. And I think that intuition was right. Now what, well, you know, the, the labels that they gave it, the, the sins they associated it with. I mean, that, that quick moralistically it became problematic, but uh-huh. there was an intuition there. I think that, that we become different around screens. And I don't think it's an accident, right? That we talk about them as screens, like things that come between oh, yeah. that filter. Yeah. That's not an accident. No, um, I've, I, I'm never going to do this, but I do know from poking around a couple of libraries that there was a sophisticated secular uh, literature written against television when it first showed up in the 40s and 50s. And I've always wanted to go back and read this literature and and see to what extent it was prophetic, because I would bet that they saw lots of things that it foresaw lots of things that have happened uh, to us. Anyway, I wish theologians, how many theologians talk about screens? How many <laughs> preachers talk about screens? I don't understand it. Uh, I, I, I don't understand it because it's one of the most important things that's happened to us in, in the last two decades. And we just, just roll over yeah. and say, Oh, here's the latest tech thing. Let's just, Let's put church on screens. Let's zoom church. Let's whatever. Yeah. I I think it's weird. It, it is weird. Really I, weird. I, I wrote a piece, and we have to stop. But one last question for you. So I wrote a piece in the middle of the pandemic. I was on a I was invited to be on a panel, a symposium on online church. It's from uh-huh. theologians from various traditions, and I'm and I tried to make the case in that. I was the kind of lone voice arguing that the spirit is not stymied by these spaces, even if they're artificial, right? That the, the spirit remains creative. Yeah, okay. And I do, I still stand by that. I do think there's a way in which just because it's artificial doesn't mean it's unreachable for the spirit. But I, I think it is territory that needs to be sanctified. It's not, it's, there are, there is no neutral ground, right? And certainly not artificial ground. So I, I think there's room to go with that. But here's, I guess this is the question I'd like to end with for now and that is for those folks in my world or yours i mean just anyone who might be listening to this what should they do with 
their experience. How is that? Is that something that's important to take seriously, or is that? Do you feel like it, it happens to us, and if we make something of it, well and good, or do you think it's there's a kind of moral and even Christian responsibility to make something of the experiences you've had? Sure. So, um, the, you know, the Pietists are are really big on. Uh, Jesus living in your heart and feeling mm. God and so on. But, you know, the the account of creation is that God made you, all of you, and that would include your neurons, right? And your ability to think and to be rational. And um, I think the Bible itself is trying to interpret, rationalize, if you will, things that have happened to people. They're trying to figure out events and visions and dreams and so on. And that's the responsible thing. The responsible thing is to be, so to speak, a whole human being, not somebody who just feels uh, or somebody who just sees, but somebody who processes everything. I mean, this this mind we have is, uh, is an incredible gift. And uh, it, it's folly not not to think so i i know that we're never going to see the day where every single christian reads william james's the variety of religious experience (laughs) but we could have pastors in sunday school talk seriously about experience right Mm -hmm. or pastors that might occasionally say things from the pulpit which would give people permission to think and talk about uh, about things if 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 people have experiences and they can't think about them at their churches they're going to go think about them elsewhere they're going to get help from from yep. some other source and so i'm disappointed in theologians um who aren't doing much with yeah. with this i think i think there's a theological responsibility here they, I completely agree. Thanks for the nudge in that direction. <laughs> and I, 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 for one, want to see the second edition, you know, the wild and out version. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know you've got so many other writing projects for this. Dr. Allison, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you making time for Thanks, it. Thanks, Chris. We'll get a chance to talk again, okay? This was fun. Okay, take care.